Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 67. We realized that there was a need in 2017, 2018 for something that made it easy for most stakeholders to connect. And I'm not going to say that we invented Zoom. I wish we had, by the way. All of these methodologies are designed to facilitate the business between parties. My name is Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. This podcast is being launched ahead of the World of Open Accounts, or WOA's annual conference, their physical community convention held in Vienna next month on the 4th to the 5th of October. Open account business, buy now, pay later, drives economic activity worldwide. And during times of volatility, uncertainty, and of course, the pandemic, the need for solutions when it comes to receivables finance has never been more pronounced. With more market participants, the rise of non-bank lenders, and a drive towards digitalizing the open account ecosystem, there's a lot going on. So today, I'm delighted to be joined by the two co-founders of WOA, Eric Timmermans and John Breschist, joining us from Brussels and Belfast, respectively. Welcome both to Trade Finance Talks. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you very much indeed. So Eric and John, welcome. Quick elevator pitch. So in no more than 30 seconds or so, who are you, where are you from and what do you do? Eric, over to you. 30 seconds for more than almost 40 years in the industry. That's going to be a challenge, but I will try. I started uh, indeed for a Belgian factoring company in 82. I worked there for around uh, 10 years. And then I have been secretary general for International Factors Group, one of the two major international trade bodies, and also managed that into the merger with uh, FCI. And then since now, three, four years, I have uh, founded World of Open Account together with John. So that's me. John, over to you. Okay. Well, not quite as many. 36 years in the industry, can I believe it? Working in operations and strategy and based with one of the uh, largest United Kingdom receivable finance businesses. But over the last 12 years now, I've uh, been running my own consultancy business, Round Window, and working in, I think, now 26 different countries. Through that time, I've also worked with the major trade organizations and certainly over the last three years, been working with Eric to build one. Thank you very much, both of you, both figureheads and extremely experienced leaders in open account and receivables finance. And it's always a pleasure to work with WOA as partners of Trade Finance Global. So Eric, what is WOA and what are the key objectives of the organization? Well, uh, the best WOA is it's very much an online community. It's well, a platform, you can call it as well. We realized that there was a need in 2017, 2018 for something that made it easy for most stakeholders to connect. And I'm not going to say that we invented Zoom. I wish we had, by the way. But uh, we decided then already to start by doing lots of web meetings, electronic meetings, co-working in terms of uh, receivables finance in industry in order to create a platform that was making it easier for all 
stakeholders, big companies, small companies, and also all different types of people in the industry to rub shoulders and to work together. So that's basically what World of Open Account is about. Online community, open to individuals, open to organizations, and low cost and very much a digital approach, even if we do once a year, as you rightly said, also a physical conference. And uh, that's in these days even more important also to go a little bit back from time to time from only digital things. Thanks very much. And in tandem with TFG's mission around being open, being online and being accessible by the entire global community. And actually, I really enjoyed us partnering with you in your community convention back in 2019 in Antwerp. This year, you guys are also going ahead, right? Full steam ahead in Vienna on the 4th to the 5th of October, right? That's correct, indeed. We uh, are still crossing fingers, but uh, as things stand today, uh, the stars are well aligned. We have uh, already almost 50 people uh, signed up. Uh, All the measures have been taken to make it also a safe meeting. We are supported uh, by Raiffeisen, International Bank in Raiffeisen, Bank. So I can tell you these uh, compliance people in terms of uh, COVID measures, they are very serious. So it will be a very safe, but a very nice meeting as well. So looking forward to that. Thank you very much. And we're delighted to be media partners. And we also love Vienna. So John, just for our listeners, what is open account finance and what role does it play in global trade? I think one of the real challenges whenever we're talking about businesses, the definitions that people use and work from. But for me, I'd like to try and keep it quite simple and trade on credit terms, open account finance. I think all the methodologies and the products that can support that open trade is what we're interested in. We, we see it as being very much an inclusive term and not something which is a product silo. We want to be inclusive. Any um, element of trade that is there, we, we are in a position to be able to help to support the network. And I know the question is, well, how does it differ from this? How does it differ from that? The point is that we are part of a community that is there to try and serve the needs, the business needs, the finance needs of a range of growing uh, businesses that need economic support. Thank you very much. And I am going to ask the question again, but it would be good if perhaps yourself or Eric could discuss how open accounts could either differ or have similarities with receivables finance, payables finance, or trade finance. And I guess you're two types, your open account and then your documentary trade, right? Yes, that's right. I think that's the case. The issue is, though, of course, that people who are interested, all of these methodologies are designed to facilitate the business between parties. The point that we try to get across is, is that you know we will welcome involvement because these boundaries are not hard, they're flexible. Receivables finance, yes, that's based on actually what is owed. Payables finance is is buyer-centric as opposed to receivables is seller-centric. Trade finance tends to be, as you say, the difference between documentary credits being involved. I do come back to the point that what I like very much to emphasize is the commonalities, not the differences. Oh, absolutely. If I can add to that, John, indeed, I think we'll probably have a chance to talk a little bit more about that, but it's definitely one of the evolutions. There is something that is getting more and more blurred. There's less and less silos between these different uh, types of products. I think you see a sort of... uh, while uh, growing together between seller-centric, buyer-centric approach, and also between traditional trade finance and open account, so without documents uh, financing. So it's interesting times and technology plays a role in that. And in our particular approach in world of open account is uh, to embrace all products that make it easy 
for companies to get access to finance based on their trade activity, on their sales. And regardless if that is uh, with documented uh, financing or non-documented. So we definitely also include more and more even the document types. Thank you very much. And I think it's good that you try and find those commonalities between the different financing types. And actually, I guess you switch it on its head, which is what are the pain points for customers and how has that changed and evolved over the past, whether it's a few years or decades? I think one thing we've certainly seen is for everyone, cash is king. It's important Mm -hmm. for people to get paid as early as possible. And there's probably some evidence that some of the larger corporates are are paying on fairly extended payment terms and and it's causing a bit of a cash squeeze, and especially during difficult times that we're seeing in the pandemic right now, it's causing struggles, right? And any solution that we can see to help alleviate that problem and reduce that those cash payment terms is, mm-hmm. is good for the customer, right? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Being open for business and open for SMEs, because uh, we all talk and many uh, people and politicians uh, pay lip service maybe to, to uh, SMEs. But uh, if you can help a company to get their money quicker, I think you make really a difference uh, in terms of possibilities for growth or getting a stable uh, development. Absolutely. And just circling back to the kind of previous question, why should a market participant choose something like receivables or open account finance instead of other types of financing available? So perhaps other types within the debt markets, John? Well, if, if I can maybe quickly take that one, it's almost very much linked to what we just said. I think the answer to that is receivables finance is a product that is definitely designed for SMEs is designed also for companies that may not have a strong record or a history or a balance sheet that has already been established for many years. The big difference between receivables finance and more traditional corporate finance is that it's completely and entirely based on the underlying receivables, on the performance of the company. So it is more accessible. It definitely also more flexible. If a company sells more, it will also have more possibility of financing. It is um, also low covenant as compared to traditional bank financing. And it has also over the years, it's now existing in its modern forms in 60 years in Europe and in the United States. It comes under so many different flavors, uh, receivables finance, that it's always a solution that can be fit for each company because it is also not only for SMEs, definitely also more and more for mid-cap and even uh, bigger companies. So flexibility and is, is the first reason, flexibility in terms of growth finance, and most importantly, the underlying security is not the performance or the balance sheet of the borrower, but the underlying receivables of that company. And that's what makes it so different from traditional financing. I think it's really good to distinguish the underlying security versus something like perhaps asset finance or commercial mortgages or traditional commercial loans or cash flow loans. You've got that different security, which is the receivables or the the invoices themselves, which make it a whole different kind of game for those SMEs that might not have a stronger balance sheet or history, which I think is really important just to take that step back and, and take a look at why the receivables finance market is, is, I guess, a little bit more different from the traditional business loans market. John, receivables finance has continued to change over the past few years or so. Can you provide us with a brief overview 
of how the markets change, perhaps over the last 12 to 18 months and what the key drivers of this change has been? Certainly over the last 12, 18 months, there's been a very serious and significant drop in volumes that we've seen right globally, I think. But uh, we take Europe as the example. I think that uh, we've swung from an era of about 10 years where average growth has been plus 7% in the, that range a negative figure around 5% in the year. This uh, downturn has been pretty, pretty much evident everywhere. And, and it's only been equaled by the financial crisis back in 2008, 2009. Otherwise, we've seen a really good, steady level of growth in the quieter periods. In terms of what are the drivers, one of the things that I have done is look at the statistics over those years. And there really is a very strong and obvious positive correlation between between changes in GDP growth rates and receivables finance growth rates. I mean, looking at that period since 2007, those two variables have actually been showing a very strong correlation. I don't want to bore people with statistics, um, but in the sense, the correlation is, uh, has a coefficient of a figure of 0.75. If it was one, the two would be moving hand in hand. They would be glued together. If it was zero, there would be no relation to them. A statistician will tell you the correlation coefficient is above 0.5. It's meaningful. So at 0.75, this is a very strong relationship. And what it actually says is that what we've seen for every change of 1% in GDP in Europe over that period, we've seen an average of one percent 8% change in RF. And that's both up and down. It's very volatile. So we we'll always say that it's the exception that proves the rule. Last year, EU GDP growth fell by nearly 8%. Receivables fell, its growth rate fell by 13%, a 1.7% ratio. So almost an exact fit with what the statistics would tell us over that period. Without being terribly boring about statistics, what I want to say is there is a strong correlation what that it also means is that if we can expect things to go down, things can go back up as well. Thank you very much for explaining that correlation coefficient and that ratio. I think it's really important. So in summary, you're saying that when GDP receivables growth goes up, but probably a little bit more relative to GDP, the adverse is also true. So when the going gets tough for GDP, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, the receivables finance industry, or perhaps if you're looking at it from an asset class perspective, it's gone down even more. And I think that's really important when you're looking at the provision of receivables finance to SMEs and MSMEs. And I think it's important for practitioners to take note that these are some of the effects and it's all related to that correlation. You can see through a decade of data that this has been a consistent trend. John, are there any pockets or highlights when it comes to regional performance or country highlights? Have there been any countries that have fared perhaps slightly better if we take a look at Asian markets perhaps in mm. the last year or so? The question would be, uh, where has it moved? And I think the consistent message over 2020 is that pretty much everywhere has taken a hit. It's either gone into negative territory or been flat. We just talked about Europe. It had dropped at uh, 5% in 2020. The USA looks as though it was down in 2020, around 23%. South America it fared even worse, nearly 40% down. Africa showed a, a small amount of growth through particularly South Africa and Egypt. But 
the base there is tiny. I mean, we're only talking about a total of 25 billion as opposed to the 1.8 trillion that we talk about in Europe. Asia just about grew, but that growth is almost completely driven by figures coming out of China, where the figures were supposedly by 7%, but to nearly 700 billion. Sorry, I beg your pardon, 433 billion from China of 700 billion in Asia. I have to say, the figures out of China is a command economy. Some of the things which are described as receivables finance, I'm not entirely sure are the same. So the global picture is that 2020 really took a hit in the industry. I think it's really important to describe those nuances. And actually, they're talking to a lot of sources. If we're not getting accurate data out of China, it does perhaps impact those overall numbers. But I think that one of the more important parts there is Europe took about a 5% hit. And I think you've got the additional compounding from other markets, which perhaps contribute a slightly smaller proportion to total receivables finance volumes. But that gives that overall, what is it, around minus 13% dip globally in receivables finance, right? The slip is, is very clear, pretty much yeah. wherever the market you're looking at. But I guess what we've seen to that is governments have introduced fiscal stimulus and monetary policy. You know, governments pouring trillions of extra support in, in businesses to help provide backstops and provide various forms of, I guess, measures to stop them from perhaps getting into financial challenges. Has this also impacted the provision of receivables finance? So for example, if one were to be running an SME, why would they want to go to a bank providing receivables finance facilities when they can go to their government and have a government-backed loan, perhaps? I think that's a good point, uh, Depeche, indeed. And well, we have seen definitely both in the UK, but also in the US, even more dramatically in the US, certain negative influence on uh, figures for factoring in the US or receivables finance, invoice finance in the UK because of, uh, well, sort of competition from government schemes. But let's face it, that's very short term. When you look at the figures also that uh, John was mentioning, and the good thing about these are, is that John has been doing this almost stubbornly for more than 10 years, 15 years or something like that. Yeah. Because at the beginning, people said, no, no, factoring receivables finance, we are counter-cyclical. And uh, when the GDP goes down, then we are still there and we go up. But that's not true. It's simply not true. And that's why we think that uh, stimulus, no stimulus, whatever's going to happen. It is uh, like uh, some said in the past, uh, was it Clinton? Is the economy stupid? But probably that's the case also for uh, receivables finance. If GDP is going to grow again in most countries, which seems to be very much the case for the moment, touch wood, then most probably we will have a very good and successful period for receivables finance as well. And that's, again, for most countries. I think this is what's going to influence it in the most important way, more than any other specific uh, stimulus packages. Very interesting. But do you see as those stimulus packages then get pulled, do you see that there'll be a potential gap in the market or an opportunity opportunity perhaps for receivables lenders, both bank and non-bank, to say, hey, you guys are now used to government-backed debt or debt as a product. Why don't you have a think about using receivables finance as a tool, which they might never have been used to before, to actually almost convert some of that government-backed debt into receivables finance facilities and then be using and utilizing that. And that could be a good thing for the industry and also 
obviously a good thing for the economy because people are learning about these new financial products that can help their companies grow their cross-border trade. Absolutely. I think you answered your question already yourself. Uh, of course, this should lead to opportunities. Again, a lot will depend on the quality of the company and mostly the quality of its activity and of its sales activity. Yeah? Because the only thing that can be a danger is that uh, government intervention puts companies to sleep. And then when uh, they wake up suddenly without the infusion from the government, they may realize that they're not very actively involved in new markets and so on anymore. So that's the question, of course, how to manage these trends from supported economy into back to normal economy. And indeed, provided the underlying activity is good and sales is good, I'm sure that receivables finance solutions can contribute to stepping in there. Absolutely. John, yeah. maybe you have uh, different ideas. I don't know. No, I think the, the issue is that the capability of receivables finance to support the economy is quite clearly there and it's quite clearly underutilized. We take the example of the Kingdom, fewer than 40,000 businesses are actually using receivables finance and the UK is still one of the larger markets. My research would suggest that at any one time there are around 300,000 businesses that could usefully benefit from receivables finance solutions. The penetration that we've achieved is still minor. There's still great opportunity. So there is a big debate to be had. There is still a lot of awareness, understanding and a marketing that's required to actually develop the industry. It's really important that the providers act together to actually share that message. And I think it needs to be shared more effectively now than it ever has been in the past. That's a really good point. And an education of the product, whether it's by one lender or another lender or a consortium of lenders, or people like yourselves at WOA, I think it's really important to build up that awareness and market penetration, especially at a time right now. As you mentioned earlier, that transition is something that's quite hot on the debate. I was reading something this morning about uh, the transition and preventing a, a zombie apocalypse, mm -hmm. that is government supporting mm -hmm. a lot of zombie companies or companies that probably shouldn't be financed. And if they were to you know, naturally be left mm -hmm. of their own accord, they wouldn't be there today. But that would kind of clear the way for new innovative companies. Talking about innovation. Eric, have you seen the rise and the legitimate rise of more tech trends within the receivables finance space probably accelerated as a result of the pandemic? Oh, absolutely, Depeche. I think this is, uh, if there's one trend that is clear in open account and receivables, but also in trade finance. And it's one of the reasons why I said earlier that there is a sort of convergence of models taking place. Uh, it's because of uh, digitization. <laughs> and uh, it's obvious that the pandemic has uh, given a big boost to investments uh, because, uh, well, people had to think about changing models and changing uh, their ways of doing things. So yes, indeed, there is definitely a trend towards uh, what they call, what you can say, bigger visibility, better information, thanks to uh, digitization. At the same time, and I think this is important, almost a warning that I would like to make as well in this uh, evolution. And I'm not the only one who invented this. Uh, recently, an interesting article about uh, trade innovation that seems to be stranded somewhere on digital islands. I think this is a big risk we all run that there's a lot of initiatives in distributed ledger here, a few companies doing this and other companies doing that, but you need a certain moment, some harmonization in two spaces. You need harmonization in legal 
area and you need harmonization also in terms of interoperability. I think about there are a number of, I think as an example, a number of uh, companies that are invest in uh, offering solutions to avoid double financing of invoices because of a distributed ledger database of uh, invoices. But this can only really work if it is linked to other similar systems. So if there's interoperability, it's like email. Email can only work if uh, you don't have to think about who on the other side, uh, uh, what system does this person works with. I would plead, and sorry, I'm going a little bit far in this maybe uh, because your question was uh, about trends, but I think digitization, indeed, very important. But I think that we all should think also about harmonizing. There are some good initiatives from the ICC with Digital Standards Initiative. There are, ITVA is doing some stuff uh, with DNI. Myself, I'm involved in the invoicing world these days. There's also global interoperability framework, interoperability framework, difficult word to say, I'm sorry. I think we should all, and this is again a role for associations such as World of Open Account, try to help to get into this harmonization, doing things together jointly as a community. So this is definitely an important uh, space. And the second, and then I stop because I'm talking too much, I'm sorry, in terms of tech is a clear evolution towards non-bank financial institutions starting to get into the space because banks are pulling out. You know, We know that banks are pulling out of international receivables finance more and more for good reasons or for bad reasons, whatever, no good reasons because uh, compliance and so on is too expensive, too complex and too risky. But this all liquidity that is looking for opportunities. So and investors are now being connected to trade assets and uh, this is also very much supported by lots of new technology. But that's a second trend that is very interesting to see and we are going to see more of that in the coming years I'm sure. The rhetoric has changed because I was watching my interview I did with you in Antwerp back in 2019 with you both and I think back then we were discussing mm -hmm. them as disruptors in, in the industry and very much innovation at the start and I think we've almost maybe not gone too far but we've mm -hmm. gone through this journey of creating mm -hmm. lots of digital islands, data silos and we've seen yep. this lack of harmonization. I do challenge you guys to probably say is it really the responsibility of the private companies companies, those innovators, those newbies onto the scene to solve the problem of interoperability, because ultimately it's a commercial venture, right? It's a who's going to get the biggest market share the quickest, the apples and the iOS of the world. Their aim was never to create interoperability between their different apps. Uh, their aim was to get market share. Should there be a player like the ICC that stands in to create those standards and the on interoperability piece? It would be good just to hear your opinions on that. I do agree, Depeche. It's not up to the newcomers who are the innovators to work on interoperability and on harmonization because you're right. Their role is to find the application that everybody wants and to get extremely rich. Of course, that's uh, obvious. But it's up to the corporates, up to the communities, up to the providers to think about how can we jointly grow the business of all these people as well by getting some standards in place. And I think indeed organizations such as ICC are very well placed to help, but it's also about the associations. And I think in Receivers Finance, uh, World of Open Account, it's a modest initiative, but we have done our, our fair share of this and we will continue to spread the word about uh, these uh, necessities. Well, a call to action. I think the industry, Receivers Finance industry should get their act together more proactively uh, 
uh, more aggressively even in, in trying to get up to legal harmonization and to uh, other harmonization. That's my personal opinion. I think we have been maybe too lazy in that respect uh, in the past. Thanks, Eric. Um, some bold words there. And I think that harmonization is also very much linked to the rise of NBFI or, or non-bank funding. I think a lot sure. of people still question whether there is enough liquidity in the market to actually fund those players given the colossal dropouts we've seen from the banks for whatever reason that might be. So I think there's still a lot of work to come and a lot of work to do to really grow receivables finance as an asset class. And, and we have seen lots of developments. I mean, when you compare receivables finance to trade finance, which people is still mm-hmm. relatively misunderstood, I think from an asset class perspective, you've got very sophisticated receivable securitization programs, sure. which have been running for quite a long time now, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, of course. That's the easy part. Well, easy. Yeah. I'm not saying that securitization is easy, but uh, you see what I mean. These are structures that you can put in place. There is historic uh, knowledge about this. But as soon as you want to finance a fintech with individual invoices of 10,000 uh, euros or pounds, it becomes more tricky. Then uh, it, it becomes just more risky as well. And, and you need lots of knowledge and understanding and uh, digital solutions as well to make that happen. Because there is, I think, liquidity is there. There's an interest definitely in everything related to trade finance, open account or traditional trade finance, but it's not easy because an invoice or receivable is, it looks like an easy asset, but it isn't because it's generally worth the paper it's written up. That's uh, the difficulty of it. So many things can go wrong with receivables as well. So that's my point. Just coming, wrapping this podcast up and I don't want to uh, give away all of the surprises in stock for the Warwick Community Convention where we'll go into a lot of this in a lot more detail. But John, what are some of the most prominent challenges in this space at the moment and really see the industry going and developing, say, in the next 12 months? We've already talked about the technological issues of development. Who does it? How do they talk to each other? How do they make it work together? I think the same thing applies in terms of the regulatory and legal environments. Um, I've just completed a study across the whole of Europe of the uh, legal environments in which uh, each country operates. And I think I came across something like 19, for example, 19 variations in the way that VAT is dealt with in the receivables finance industry. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to make life easier, especially for businesses which are going across board. Other prominent challenges, one of the areas that occurs to me is the issue which affects both the traditional and the newcomer businesses. Things like uh, KYC, um, customer due diligence, um, anti-money laundering fears are really affecting the willingness and ability to do business at the moment. I think we're still seeing eye-watering fines going through, for example, for obvious failings. So this is making organizations fearful and risk averse. So we do need to find better ways, I think, of getting the technology to do the heavy lifting in this sort of area of actually building businesses from the start. Again, some of the things that we're going to see very much a focus on is actually how can technological and legal environments be built how can they be uh, manipulated? How can they be lobbied to actually make sure that the receivables finance industry is in a position to actually take advantage of the opportunities that we know that are there? Well, thank you very much, John and Eric. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But just to kind of wrap up on a few of those key themes that we've discussed on today's podcast, I'm sure many more of those will be discussed in, in a lot more detail at the WOA Community Convention. But I think that correlation coefficient, that 0.75, the correlation between receivables growth and GDP growth is actually a really important number or something to think about as we move hopefully towards more of an economic recovery in the next 12 to 18 months or so. But there are lots of challenges. We've seen that the issues with data silos, with digital islands, and perhaps it's always interesting to question challenge who is going to solve that problem and who should solve that.
that problem. Amongst that, we've also seen huge fines and huge failures within the industry. And there was always the worry that could ramp up regulation, which actually almost means that banks find it harder and harder to continue offering their receivables finance services. You've also seen the rise of non-bank financial institutions into this space, but it's always then a question of how can we grow and accelerate the volumes that they provide in the market amidst all of the challenges that we've seen and we haven't seen going away around anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, double invoicing. Lots of really interesting issues going on there and all to be discussed in person at the WOA community convention. John, Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on Trade Finance Talks. See you soon. Thank you. you. Goodbye. See you soon. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 